Well, like I, like I said earlier, today is a is a little bit different for us as a church. Normally, uh, our, our our service would not include this much corporate prayer, and normally our sermon time would be a, a sermon based on a specific passage in the Bible that's usually next in line. We tend to go through books at, all at a time and, and work through them verse by verse to try to get the whole message of the book. We just finished up a long series in the book of Hebrews that took us a whole year. And then next week, we're going to start a new series in the book of Isaiah, which is going to take us about half of next year. But today, in between these two series, we want to do something a little bit different. As we look back over what God has done and give thanks for it, look ahead to what we hope God will do for us in 2013 and pray over that, I wanted to spend at least one Sunday doing something you might call, what you might call a topical sermon, to actually spend some time pulling from different parts of the Bible to understand prayer better. The idea is that if we understand more why prayer is called for and why, why it works, why it matters so much to God, then I think it'll, it'll drive us, it'll motivate us to pray more faithfully. I don't, I don't know anyone who feels happy with their prayer life as it is. Right? I think all of us, no matter where we are in our walk with Christ, wish that we prayed more, that we prayed more consistently, with more detail, with, uh, with, with more focus. And I think the more we understand about the Bible's priority of, on prayer and why prayer is so important, the better we'll be able to do it. At least that's the theory. What I want to do this morning is talk really specifically about how the gospel relates to prayer. Here's what I mean. We believe that the church is a people that's called together and given an identity by a message, by a word that comes to us from the God who made us and who promises to make us new. That this word, which we call the good news or the gospel, cuts down to us through the centuries, speaking to us just as it has always spoken, calling us out of darkness and into light. And that the only, the only thing that binds us together as a church is this, this word. The gospel gives us our identity. So what we always have to be asking ourselves is what's the connection between this word that gives us our identity and tells us who we are and the things that we do? What we want to avoid is a disconnect between that good news which tells us who we are and how we live. What we want to to strive for is a pattern of life as a church that fits the good news that gives us our identity as a church. I hope that makes sense. So, So maybe to help clarify it, I feel like one of the weaknesses that I had early on in my Christian life was that I tended to think about the good news as something for people who don't believe in Jesus. It was something that you that you knocked on someone's door and told them in an effort to get them into the Christian community, right? To try to win them through evangelism. But that once you were in, you move on to the other things that are in the Bible. Things about how, how to live or more details about what God is like or, or what God expects of us. One of the things that I think God has shown me through his word uh, in, in the last few years of my Christian life has been that the gospel is for all of us, that this good news that calls us out and binds us together as a community, also tells us everything we need to know, or, or in it is embedded everything that we need to know. Explained in more detail in other places, obviously, but, but in it is sort of a DNA for us that sets how we grow and what we look like, that, that shapes all of our life as Christians and as churches. It's not just for those who don't believe in Jesus. If that's true, then we would expect for the gospel, the good news that gives us our identity, to have a lot to do with prayer, 
which is one of the main practices that we're called to all through the New Testament and in the Old Testament as well, but especially in, in, the, in the passages that describe what the first churches were like, they were praying all the time. So what we can, I think what we can say is that if the gospel calls us out and, and tells us who we are, and then we see the people who owned the gospel praying all the time, there's got to be some connection between these two things, and we want to know what that is. We want to pry into that. That's what we want to do today. It's pretty simple and hopefully won't take too long. I want to explain how I think the gospel tells us why to pray and how the gospel tells us what to pray. The gospel tells us why to pray, and then it tells us also what to pray. The gospel, as we understand it, is, is pretty simple. The gospel tells us that there is a God who created everything that is. He's the only reason that there is something and not nothing. And that God created everything that is as a reflection of the beauty and glory that is his character. That he created humans in particular with a special dignity that he called on humans to reflect what he's like, to give, to give a clearer picture of what God is like. That's what it means to be created in God's image. That's what sets humans apart from other parts of the world. But that humans, all of us, rather than being comfortable and content, imaging God, reflecting what he's like, have chosen to go our own way, have committed a kind of treason against the one, our only rightful sovereign, have abandoned the one who created us to have a relationship with him, to love and, and cherish him and enjoy him. We've committed treason and we've committed adultery. Those are the two, two of the images that the Bible most often gives to what it is that, that, that we do when we choose not to, to worship and honor God. Our treason and our adultery have left us empty. They've left us completely in bondage of sin. It's why we all know what it's like to wish we could change and not be able to. It's why we all come to resent things in other people, where we see sin crop up in them, or why we all weep over things that we read in the news when evil crops up in places like Newtown, Connecticut. This is the condition in which we find ourselves in. The gospel tells us that this isn't the end, that God himself, the offended party, the one against whom treason was committed, has come into the world to stand for us and take the punishment that our treason requires, that the one who was offended or abandoned in this relationship has come to us to woo us back, to win us back to himself. And that even though there's nothing we can do to earn this kind of grace, it's offered to us freely if we will just commit to him instead of any other God. That's the essence of the gospel. Now, what about that message? Can we, what from that message, rather, can we learn about prayer? That's what we want to say today. I'm going to start with why to pray. The gospel tells us why we should pray. And I'm going to say two things about this to answer that. To, to, if, if, if the gospel says why to pray, what does the gospel say? Here's the first thing. Spiritual renewal is something that only God can give. The gospel tells us that spiritual renewal, which is what we're really looking for, that's what we're all about, is something only God can give. What I mean by that is that you know, the gospel tells us that we have this problem that's often described as a death in the soul, something that keeps us from being who we want to be, who we, were, who we were made to be, that keeps us from wanting the things of God, that keeps us doing the things we wish we could stop doing. It's what makes us selfish. What we need is renewal, a new life, a new birth. And that's something that the gospel tells us only God can give. If we could, if we could work that up on our own, if we could generate it for ourselves, 
then why in the world would Jesus come to die? The essence of the gospel is God coming to the world to give himself. And that tells us something about how bad our problem is. It tells us that there's really no other way, because if there had been another way, he would have taken it. And if that's true, then that means spiritual renewal that we all need is something that we just can't give to ourselves. Only God can give it. And because only God can give it, we pray. We ask him for it. There's a reason that Paul talks about the gospel process in language of death and new life. First, the first thing I want to point you to from the scriptures is Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your Bible, flip over there really quickly, Ephesians chapter 2. And if you don't have one and would like one, there are Bibles scattered down the middle aisles and someone would be happy to pass one to you. Ephesians chapter 2 is, is one example of, of the kind of language that Paul uses and others use regularly. The language of death and life. Verses 1 and 2 describe the before. You were dead in trespasses and sins. There it is, right? And once you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the before. What he describes here is what we've already said about the go- what the gospel tells us. That is that our sin has created a problem too big for us. It's created a problem that leaves us basically dead. And what dead person has any sort of strength or resource to heal themselves? To call on, on someone who's spiritually dead to, to improve, to get better, to take control of their life would be like calling on someone lying dead in a coffin to get up and walk. It just can't happen. Verse 4 describes how God meets us in our spiritual death with the promise of new life. Verse 4 says, But God, even though this is who you were, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the other side of the equation in the gospel, right? Who we were, dead in sins, dead in trespass. Who God makes us, alive in Christ, seated together with him as if we were there right now, mysteriously, where God himself rules over all. Seated with him, waiting on his resurrection to be passed to all of us. That's a death to life story that only God could tell. And if only God can do this, if only God can bring the dead to life, and if what we want to see in and through our church is new spiritual life, then the only method we've got, the only thing we can do about it, is ask him to do it. Is ask him to make the dead alive. We pray because spiritual renewal is something only God can give. If Ephesians 2 is the sort of theory behind this, the book of Acts is a great example or story of this theory in practice. Uh, we obviously don't have time to go deeply into what Acts says, but if, you, if you're looking for a good thing to start your year off with for your devotions, read through Acts and look at how often the people of God are praying together. It starts out right away. Chapter 1, Jesus gathers all of his, all of his people together right before he leaves the earth, and he tells them that the Holy Spirit is going to come to them. How would they know? They didn't even know what this was. 
but they knew it was supposed to bring them some power and that that power was going to make them effective witnesses for Jesus throughout the earth. And so they, they wait. And as they wait, they pray because they know that spiritual renewal is what they're all about and that they just can't do it. So verse 14 of chapter 1 says that with one accord they were devoting themselves to prayer. The next thing talked about is the work of Pentecost where the Spirit comes down on His people and makes them powerful evangelists and they get to speak in all these languages they didn't even know before. Everyone is hearing the gospel in their own language and people are coming to Christ dramatically and in in amazing numbers. As a result of their prayer, same thing happens again in chapter 4, verses 23 to 31 and then again in chapter 13 with the, the beginning of Paul and Barnabas' mission. The, the, the bottom line is that as the church wanted to accomplish new things, as they wanted to see new things happen, they prayed about it because that's what they had. That's the weapon that they had in the arsenal, and that's it. I want to quickly give you one illustration of this. Uh, you know, I don't, have to, I don't go church history on you guys very often, but you're about to get a church history example because I think it works so well. Uh, this, is a, this is a negative example. A contrast example. What I want to use this example for is to help you see how what you understand the gospel to say has to connect somehow to what you try to do with your church and in your ministry. In uh, roughly a couple hundred years ago, there was a huge revival in America. It was known as the Second Great Awakening. Uh, It really swept all over the country. Uh, It 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 started up in the Northeast and, and went west it was even down here. And this is this is the revival. If, if you're from Kentucky, you might know about like the, the huge tent revival that was held there, uh, Cane Ridge revival in Kentucky. Any Kentuckians know about Cane Ridge? Nobody. Uh, okay. Well, there was a big. Trust me. You're just gonna take my word on it. I'm a historian. Okay. Take my word on it. Uh, this huge revival swept the country. Was very influential. But something else developed during this time a change in the understanding of the gospel, a change in the understanding of what people needed to have happen to them for them to have spiritual renewal. During this revival, there, there, there grew this intense focus on a science of manufacturing spiritual experiences and of building up a sort of machinery to make these spiritual experiences happen. The figure that's best known for this is a guy named Charles Finney. Anybody heard of Charles Finney? He's a revivalist during this time. He would travel all over uh, preaching at these huge revival meetings, and he was one of the best known proponents of this. For, he, he, was, he was best known with, this, with the development of what he called and others called after him new measures. New measures. What, it, what the new measures were were new tricks, new tools to try to generate spiritual renewal in people to try to get some success in their revival preaching. So measures like uh, a new arrangement of worship space. He was, one of the, he was the first guy that I know of who, who built his church when he finally built it like a theater. So you had the, 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 the seats kind of in the round almost around a central stage that offered lots of space for him to move around and offered you know, elevated sight lines for people who were sitting out there. And the, the theory was that this would make people feel more connected to the preacher. It would help him to move around more like an actor and, and captivate their attention, which you know, is commonplace now. It's, it's, it's a tame enough thing. He's the one who developed the anxious bench. Anybody ever heard of the anxious bench? Uh, so the anxious bench was this bench 
that was set at the front of the room. And at the conclusion of his message, he would always call on people who were experiencing conviction from the message to come and sit here. And then they would gather around them and pray over them. The anxious bench was for the one who was anxious about whether or not he was okay with God and, whether, and, and was trying to consider whether or not to, to give his life to Jesus. It's where the practice that is now known as the altar call comes from. Uh, a lot of us probably grew up in churches where the last thing after the sermon was a call to come forward and give your life to Jesus. And that was not practiced before a couple hundred years ago, and Finney was one of the ones who introduced it. Here's the point, though. These new measures come from Finney saying, from, from Finney's understanding of what it took to get people converted, of what it took to give people spiritual renewal. He had a very different understanding than, than we do about what the human problem is. What the human problem is, is that they're distracted by other things. They just need to be focused on Jesus. They need to be convinced and persuaded to give their life to him. Here's what Finney said about it. This is a quote from his book, What a Revival of Religion Is. This is where I'm going with this analogy, if you're trying to desperately hold on. For Finney, revival is not, this is a quote, is not a miracle or dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is a purely philosophical result of the right use of constituted means, as much so as any other effect produced by the application of means. Let me read that one more time. What a revival is, according to Finney, is not a miracle or dependent on a miracle in any sense. It's a purely philosophical result of the right use of constituted means. What he means is, it's cause and effect. If you can find the thing that is going to get, create in people what you want to create in them, then the, the power to bring revival and renewal is in your grasp. And to be fair, that quote is a little extreme, even for Finney. He did believe that prayer was important. But, but at root, he had a different understanding of what the gospel includes. The gospel calls for a, a new kind of inspiration in people, but not the passage from death to life. If, if what people need is to be brought to new life and only God can do it, then what we need is not new, new measures. What we need is prayer, is concerted, concentrated prayer. Now, it's easy for me to beat up on Finney for his optimism. I mean, he was a, time, a product of his time. They believed they could do anything during this time. It was very optimistic. And he had almost admittedly a cheesy kind of confidence in these strategies. But I'll be honest. I've seen the same kind of belief in the ability of something other than God's power in response to prayer to change people crop up in me. I think it. Pro- I, th- I mean, maybe maybe everybody thinks they struggle in unique ways. I don't know, but I I think that that being a pastor of a church plant makes you especially susceptible to this because you kind of feel like you're on the edge, right? You kind of it's a, it's a startup. You don't know if it's going to survive, and so you're grasping at anything that you might could do to give your church some stability and growth. So I haven't you know I haven't been tempted to any of Finney's particular new measures, but but I remember when we were searching for a venue, how much. I was locked in on that as if the health and, and stability of our church was going to depend on finding the right place to meet. And if we chose the wrong place, you know, then, then, then the whole thing would just be squelched at the beginning. Or you can do this with marketing strategies, right? If, if our logo isn't just right, you know, if it makes slightly wrong communication to people, then maybe the whole thing is just never going to get off the ground. There are all, I mean, fill in the blank. There are a host of things you can spend your time worrying about uh, related to the health of your church. 
that don't have any promises in God's word that, that they're going to be used to change people. What we're interested in is seeing people come to new life. And that means we got to focus in all of our energies on the things that God promised brings new life. And what he promises brings new life is prayer. Because only God can give spiritual renewal. So we pray. That's why. Now here, much, much more quickly, is the second reason why to pray. Spiritual renewal comes from God in response to faith. And that's what true prayer represents. Why to pray? First, because spiritual renewal is something only God can give. We can't, we can't produce it on our own. If we want to see it happen, we have to pray for it. Here's the second reason. It's very, very similar and connected. But We pray because spiritual renewal comes from God in response to faith. That's what the Bible's consistent message is. You want God's favor, you have to believe and trust in him. And prayer is an expression of faith. I'm guessing all of you have wondered, just as I have, at one time or another, why we should pray at all. Especially if we believe in the sovereignty of God, that he's in control of the world that he made. Um, and that all things happen according to God's purposes. And what's the point of praying? If he's just going to do what he's going to do, why bother? The short answer is that God has chosen to, to do what he's going to do through certain means, through tools. And that prayer is one of them. We know that from the example of, of the Bible and, and God's people, and we know it from what he tells us about prayer in the Bible. But the question then is, is why does God choose to use prayer to accomplish what he wants to accomplish? If he could have done anything, if he, if he could do what he wanted to do through any means, why prayer? And the gospel holds the answer to this question. The gospel's answer to this question shifts our focus from the effect that prayer has on God to the effect that prayer has on us. Don't miss that. The gospel, what the gospel tells us, and the insights we can get about prayer from the gospel, shifts our focus from what prayer implies about God and the effect it has on Him to the effect that prayer has on us. When we pray as God intends for us to pray, then we pray as the sick who are in desperate need of a doctor. We pray as those who have nothing that they have not received. We pray as those whose resources have run dry, who can't produce what they want to produce, and who have no hope but to throw themselves on the mercy of the one who has all power. Think the publican over against the Pharisee in Jesus' story. Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. Think of Mark's helpless father of a demon-possessed son. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Prayer forces us to stare our own inadequacy in the face, to look through our inadequacy and beyond our inadequacy and because of our inadequacy to the resources of God that are ours in Jesus. God must be Lord. And prayer enthrones him in our lives as Lord. Prayer is where we acknowledge that we have nothing that we have not received and can do nothing that is not given to us, that we depend on our Lord and Maker for everything. That's what prayer does. Last night I was reading in, in this novel, uh, Tolstoy's novel, Anna Karenina, which I've been reading for the better part of six months because it's freakishly long. Um, I came to this amazing passage. One of the central characters is a guy named Levin, who is an unbeliever. 
He was raised in the church and still has a lot of ties to the church and is attracted to it in some ways, but he has doubts that he just can't get rid of. And he's tried, he's, he's a very self-reliant character. He's a, he's a farmer who earns his living from the land and he doesn't depend on anyone and he stays out of debt when everyone else is going into it in Russian society. He's, he is the self-made, self-reliant man and he can't reason his way to God. And so he, he doesn't believe. And then his wife gets pregnant. And last night I read the scene where his wife was giving birth. And my wife gave birth just a few months ago, so that was very vivid in my mind. And this unbeliever, who's struggled with doubt for so long, finds himself compulsively praying to God as his wife enters in the pain of childbirth. Because what he knows is that he, at the end of his reason, is now also at the end of his power. And that this woman who is his life and this baby who they have longed for together in a time when child mortality is very high and when women often died in childbirth, that their lives were hanging in the balance and there was nothing he could do about it. And here is Tolstoy's description of his character confronted with this reality. Lord, have mercy. Forgive us. Help us. He repeated the words that somehow suddenly came to his lips. And he, an unbeliever, repeated these words not just with his lips. Now in that moment he knew that neither all his doubts nor the impossibility he knew in himself of believing by means of reason hindered him in the least from addressing God. It all blew, I love this, it all blew off his soul like dust to whom he was to turn if not to whom was he to turn if not to him in whose hands he felt himself his son and his love to be that's the despair that true prayer represents us at the end of our resources calling out on god that is a picture of faith and that's why we pray Finally, I want to say something very briefly about how the gospel tells us what to pray. We talked about how the gospel tells us why to pray. We pray because what we want to see happen in people is spiritual renewal, and only God can do that. And we know that God does that. He renews people in response to faith. The whole Bible points us to that. And prayer is an expression of faith when it's done right. Now the gospel tells us what to pray. Think about what you typically pray for in a normal day, even a normal season of life. Do you give thanks for meals? Do you give thanks when you have a near miss in traffic? When you need to sell your house? Do you give thanks when you need a job or you just got one? When you or someone you love gets sick? I do. And it's perfectly appropriate to pray during these times. In fact, these times are times when we, like Levin in Tolstoy's novel, realize that our own inadequacy, that we're just up against the limits of what we can do on our own, and so we're driven to prayer, and that is appropriate. Here's the thing. We should feel just as desperate, just as incapable of producing what we want to see when it comes to spiritual growth. The despair we feel when we know we can't generate a buyer for our house and we have to sell our house because we've got to get out of there for whatever reason. We should feel that same sense of urgency and despair when we think about ourselves and our battle with some sin that we just can't seem to shake or when we think about someone that we want to see change and we just can't make them. 
if you look at Paul's prayers, the way he prays in his letters for his friends, the ones to whom he's writing the letters, what he's praying for is dominated by what the gospel tells us God wants to do in us. He prays the gospel for his friends. And he does that because he knows that the change that the gospel produces in them is the thing they need most and that, the, that no other power other than God's can do it. And so he prays through the steps and the content of the gospel for his friends. There are a lot of examples we could do here. I want to point you to one of my favorite books about prayer called A Call to Spiritual Reformation by a guy named D.A. Carson. I believe there's still one um, in our resource table, which will be set up again for next week. Uh, if, uh, you can obviously get it anywhere else if, if you want to take a look at it. It's a study of all of Paul's prayers, one by one, each chapter given to a prayer. And it's very enlightening about how we should be praying. I want to point you just briefly before we close to one example in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, we get one of Paul's prayers. This is Paul praying the gospel for his friends. The gospel tells us what to pray, and it tells us that what we need most, what we should feel most urgency and despair over, is not the things that are sort of on video in our lives, like selling houses and getting jobs, whereas the progress of the gospel is more on audio. But we 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 should promote the gospel and its effect on us into video, the category of video, so it's vivid and and bright before us and captivates our our attention, our imagination. And that's what we should be praying about. That's Paul's model. Colossians chapter 1 shows us this in practice. He says in verse 9, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So he's praying that his friends are going to know what God wants from them, what, are, what things are beautiful and right in God's mind, that they would have wisdom and understanding. And that verse 10 continues, the purpose of this would be to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that we, we would please him by the way that we live. We would bear fruit for him in every good work. We would increase in our knowledge of him. He prays that his friends would be strengthened with all power, God's power would be in them, and that would cause him to endure, to have patience, to have joy, even though life is throwing all this stuff at them that they can't control, that their joy would hold on, that their faith would not be shaken. What you can see here, without just, just in a short reading without much attention to it, is that Paul is praying through what he knows the gospel wants to do in people, what God means the gospel to do in people. He means for it to change who we are, to Help us to see our trust in him as the engine that drives us, that, as the, the main thing that identifies us, as the thing that changes us to look more like Jesus. He's praying for his friends that they would come to look more like Jesus. What we pray for shows what we value most, what concerns us most, what we think we need most. What we pray for shows what we value most, what concerns us most, what we think we need most. The gospel tells us what's most important. And that should have a dramatic impact on the way that we pray for ourselves, on the way we pray for other people, the way we pray for our church and its ministry. We should feel the same kind of urgency and despair that drives us to prayer over whether or not our friends in our small groups or whoever you might be eating lunch with that day is is growing in Christ, is coming to love the promises of the gospel more deeply and to rest in them more fully. 
We should be praying that the Spirit would change us so that we're less selfish and more giving, that we come to love each other with the love of Christ, that we are forgiving, that we are slow to take offense, that we do not gossip about each other. That's the kind of changes that we want to see happen in our community through the gospel, and we must pray these things for each other. So really practically, when you're frustrated by somebody, when you're wrong by them or you're resenting something about them that you just wish they would change, the gospel tells us that, that the main means we've got at our disposal is not talking about that with somebody else, is not beating them over the head with it, but is praying for them because the Spirit has the power to change them. Praying is not doing nothing. Praying is taking up the most valuable, the most effective weapon that we've got at our disposal to change people for the good, to see them conform to the image of Christ. So you pray. You pray Colossians 1 for them. That's what we want to do now, actually. As we look ahead to our next year, uh, we're going to spend the next few minutes praying over the things that are going to shape our church life together. I've asked Drew and Bill, our elders, to come up and lead us during this time. Uh, but, But each of them have got some things that they're going to pray about that are sort of milestones for our church, the the the. the the bulk of our ministry for this year, and we trust that just like this last year has shown us, we want to see things happen that we can't do. And so we want to start our year outright by committing these things to our Father and calling on Him for aid. Drew, lead us in prayer, brother.